Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Dolly Parton has had 25 number one singles. But the country music star's greatest gift to humanity is without doubt the million dollars she donated to Nashville's Vanderbilt University for research into the Moderna vaccine. Early trials showed the vaccine to be 95% effective against the COVID-19 virus. The 75-year-old icon was filmed getting her jab, adapting the lyrics of her hit Jolene for the occasion. But Tennesseans who rushed to buy her records seem in no hurry to get her vaccine. Only 39% of adults in the state are fully vaccinated. One of the highlights of the Dollywood theme park in Tennessee's Smoky Mountains is a replica of the one-room shack on Locust Ridge where the singer grew up with her 10 brothers and sisters. This week, America's Disease Control Agency, the CDC, reinstated guidance advising people to wear masks indoors in COVID hotspots. This poses a dilemma for Dollywood, which has been following CDC guidelines. In a part of America generally sceptical of COVID restrictions, will visitors to Dolly's cramped shrine mask up again? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Priddo, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today... Why aren't more Americans vaccinated? On the 4th of July, Joe Biden declared a return to normal. Since then, the Delta variant has knocked America's pandemic recovery off course. A third of American adults are still not vaccinated, despite plentiful supplies. A debate is raging about the rights of employers, educators and the government to force Americans to get a COVID vaccine. In this episode, we report from Arkansas, which is battling a new wave of infections, find out how the trade-off between liberty and public health dents Americans' life expectancy, and look at new data modeling to figure out why so many people have refused the vaccine. With me to discuss all of this are Tamara Jilks-Bohr, The Economist's public policy correspondent who's based in Washington, and James Astill, also in Washington, the Lexington columnist and Washington bureau chief. Tamara, how are you doing? You've been to Arkansas since we last spoke. How was your trip? Arkansas was great. I've been to Little Rock one time before uh, as a tourist where I got to do things like go to the Clinton Library. I've also been to the Clinton Library in Little Rock, and the thing that really stuck out for me was the number of bizarre gifts that a president gets given by visiting dignitaries, many of which are on display in in Little Rock. You would have thought that people would really think hard about the gifts they bring to an American president, but there's the most extraordinary array of of rubbish, frankly, that's that, that's on display. James, how are you doing? What's what's news your end? Uh, just just the sort of Washington 
late July, early August story feels like politics should be slowing down more than it is. We've obviously had a bit of action in Congress. And meanwhile, everybody is slowing down because it's hot and it's humid and it's sapping. But I'm on my way up to Maine later today, so I'm happy. Oh, that's great. And how is your vegetable garden? Because last time we spoke, you'd neglected it for a couple of weeks and you'd come back to a scene of devastation. Has it, has it recovered? Brilliantly, John. The the um, the hot, humid Washington July August weather that makes everybody slow down makes veggies speed up. This is God's own country for growing vegetables, and it's of course the main reason that I live here. I'm glad that hot, sticky weather is good for something. Okay, we have a lot to discuss in this episode, which is about vaccine hesitancy in America and understanding the reasons for it. And Tamara, let's begin with you and your trip to Arkansas, because you were on a reporting trip there to try and figure out what's going on in a state where vaccine take-up is pretty low. What did you find? So when I first decided to head to Little Rock, I have to admit that I was a little nervous. I had heard from the main and only Health Sciences University that the COVID situation was a raging forest fire. And I knew that vaccination rates were low. So to be honest, I was a little nervous about what I would find. Um, This is Tana from The Economist, and she is writing an article about vaccines in Arkansas. So why are you here today? To take the last COVID shot. In the hospital clinic I visited in Little Rock, there was just a trickle of people getting vaccinated. At times, staff outnumbered the people who'd come to get their shot. It's being shut down for lack of demand. But actually, I'm glad I went ahead and did it. Vaccination rates across Arkansas are low, just 41% among the over 12s. The state's in the middle of another wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's only Health Sciences Hospital The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences is near capacity from battling severe COVID-19 infections among the unvaccinated. Most of my time I spend beating my head against the wall. (laughs) Um, Cam Patterson is chancellor at the University Hospital. COVID-19 infections in Arkansas are five times the national average. So we're back on the roller coaster. Unfortunately, this surging COVID-19 cases is coinciding with an awful lot of COVID-19 fatigue, as well as a lot of misinformation about the benefits of the vaccine. And those two things have particularly hit the state of Arkansas hard. So sometimes it feels like we're really fighting an uphill battle. We have the tools to defeat COVID-19 and we've shown that they work, but uh, we can't get enough shots in, in people's arms. The contrast between the situation inside hospitals and life elsewhere in Little Rock is striking. Air-conditioned restaurants are packed with unmasked diners. Many employees at these places wear face coverings, but not all. You know, the truth is, walking around here, you should be seeing people who are masked up, and you should be seeing people, you know, behaving in in a responsible way. And, you know, I, I think because you know, we stepped back from having a mandate for masks. I I think some people have taken that as a sign that masks are not needed. I I think what you're seeing is actually part of what is causing this 
forest fire to rage. The Republican-run state has banned mass mandates, but Frank Scott Jr., the mayor of Little Rock and a Democrat, is ready to defy it. I took an oath to serve and protect the public health, safety, and welfare of every resident of Little Rock. And so if it gets to the point that we need to do something, we will, even if it means we go against the state. You know, in Arkansas, we have really struggled with health literacy over the years. This is not new. Jennifer Dillahay of the Arkansas Department of Health says it's a problem that goes beyond partisan political divisions over COVID restrictions. People struggle with how to get good health information and apply it to their lives. And this existed as a problem in our state long before the previous administration. She thinks education will eventually help overcome disinformation and raise vaccination rates. I'm not finding that blame is very useful. I think that empathy and compassion is more appropriate. No one is choosing to not get vaccinated because they're wanting to make a bad decision for themselves. So what brought you here today? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we've kind of held out because uh, uh, we had our reasons. We had, we both, you know, have kind of isolated jobs. And, and we had a little distrust of the whole process, too. Back at the clinic, speaking with a couple in their 60s made me hopeful that more minds might be changed. You know, I have the same skepticism about the whole thing. You know, it's just that they rush it through so fast and normally it takes years for for drugs to be approved by the FDA and things. I just wanted to kind of see how it shook out before I, uh, you know, committed to doing it. Well, and the Delta variant was a big deal for us, you know, because uh, it seemed like when that hit was when my two friends right. became well, so ill. It's, it's just really been bad. terrifying bad. to watch. Yeah. Terrifying. And look at India and various places. It's just heart-wrenching. So if it helps in small, some small way to, not only for me, but for everybody else, and I'm on board with it. That's great. It just took a while for it to, you know, we're kind of hard-headed <laughs> conservatives. It just took a while for it to chisel in. Tamara, that contrast that you drew there between the clinic that's closing down because of lack of demand for vaccinations, even though... 40-something percent of folks in Arkansas aged 12 or over have been vaccinated. And the hospital, which is full of patients suffering from COVID-19 and presumably mainly from the Delta variant, is really striking. How widespread is that picture across the South? Unfortunately, I think that we're seeing that across the South, despite the fact that hospitals are near capacity and that the situation is really dire. We're seeing that vaccine clinics are basically empty. When I walked in to the clinic, there were more employees there than actual people getting vaccinated. Um, I think at one point there were two people and about four to five employees um, in this large space. You can even hear in the audio the echoing 
that was happening in that space. Uh, there just was so much capability to deliver vaccines, but so little demand. And James, the politics that Tamara found in Little Rock, where you have the mayor uh, being interested in mask mandates and you know, concerned about the spread of the variant and, and really wanting people to get vaccinated, and the statewide politics uh, that push in a different direction, that's something that's been repeated all across the country, isn't it? Yeah, yeah we're seeing local government officials and actually even state governors in the case of Ohio's governor, Mike DeWine, who want to follow, you know, dispassionate um, public health advice, but are being prevented uh, from doing so by legislators from their own party who have banned mask mandates, just for example. I was very struck by a piece that Sarah Hucker B. Sanders wrote in a paper in Arkansas a couple of days ago. So Huckabee Sanders is, of course, um, Trump's former press secretary and is now running for governor in Arkansas. So she's she's very much styled herself as a Trump extension, as a Trump cheerleader, as a Trump Republican. And she wrote a, an op-ed piece, and this reflects what we've seen across the GOP in the last you know week or week and a half. Uh, a little bit of a change, a little bit more of a concerted effort to persuade people to get vaccinated. Her piece was in that spirit. And it 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 sort of starts off by admitting that a few months ago she got vaccinated, something that she hadn't cared to share with anyone public before. And she says on this, you know, she got vaccinated and she got vaccinated sort of really reluctantly, she says in this op-ed piece. And she said that, you know, she had a lot of misinformation thrown at her by politicians and the media during the pandemic. Like many of you, she says, I spent a lot of time sorting through it all. And what I found was simple, she writes. Dr. Fauci and the because science says so crowd of arrogant, condescending politicians and bureaucrats were wrong about more than their mandates and shutdowns that have inflicted incalculable harm on our people in the economy. But this is Sarah Huckabee Sanders' argument for why people in Arkansas should get vaccinated. So you, you have this great barrier of COVID denialist, public health denialist politics to get through before you can even make the argument that people should get vaccinated in Arkansas. I thought that was pretty revealing. Even the pro-vaccination argument, therefore, has become thoroughly partisan. The only reason that people in Arkansas should get vaccinated, Sarah Huckabee Sanders ends up saying, is sort of to spite President Biden, who told lies about the Trump vaccine. I mean, it, it, it's really off the wall stuff. Yeah. Tamara, how representative of vaccine scepticism were the folks you talked to at the end there, the couple who seemed to me as sceptical in the proper sense, right? They were talking about, well, the FDA approval for this has been quite quick and normally vaccines take longer in development. But on the other hand, there's this risk from the Delta variant. So that was the thing that tipped us over the edge. I mean, when we discuss vaccine scepticism, it's often in the context of people believing totally mad things about Bill Gates, you know, implanting microchips in people's brains or, you know, in the context of people who really spent very little time trying to understand the science of any of this at all. So I was just wondering how representative that that sort of informed scepticism is, do you think, versus the sort of uninformed variant? Yeah, so I would say coming from Washington, D.C. in my liberal majority vaccinated environment, I thought I would go to Little Rock and 
hear people just screaming craziness, um, having conspiracy theories, saying things that I just couldn't connect with or understand. And when I faced the people that we see every day or hear every day in the news and looked them in the eye, it was hard to deny the concern and the fear. I could see and hear it in their voices. I could see it behind their eyes. And it really struck me that this is not necessarily a group that has completely given in to the nonsense. They are grappling with and trying really hard, it seemed, to make a logical choice and decision. And many people discussed feeling damned if you do, damned if you don't, feeling like, well, I might die from this COVID-19 infection, but I also might die from this vaccine. And if I get the vaccine, I'm 100% likely to get it. I'm going to go get it. I will get it inserted in my arm and I could or very likely will have side effects was what many of them thought versus I could stay at home. I can be safe in whatever that means to them and potentially avoid the whole thing altogether. I was really struck by how fearful and hesitant people really sounded. It's easy to deny when you're in DC and you're not hearing people with that fear. It was hard to deny it when I was looking at them, especially with masks on. (laughs) If they had them on, all you can see are their eyes. And it's really struck me that there was just such concern. And James, to your point, the relative weighing up of risks there, which is actually incredibly easy to do, right? In the sense that side effects are pretty mild and very, very few people have had serious problems from getting vaccinated versus likely effects of getting infected with COVID-19. You know, the difference in risks there is so great that that's where having trusted voices from your own partisan universe helping you to weigh those risks is incredibly important and sort of more meaningfully in this case the absence of those voices on the right excepting a few folks like you know Governor Mike DeWine in in Ohio who you spoke to recently. No for sure I, I you know Tamara's kind of description of those confused nervous vaccine hesitant people is quite moving but it's also deeply frustrating because they are straightforwardly victims of misinformation. They have had doubt sown in their minds for political purposes. Not to say that there wasn't doubt before because of the fragmentation and the inequities uh, in the the US healthcare system because of low levels of, of education and connectedness to authoritative mainstream media in many parts of the country. There was already a certain skepticism and hesitancy around vaccination in these same parts of the country before COVID-19 struck. We saw that with the, the swine flu uh, uh, vaccine hesitancy um, spasm um, a few few years ago, much smaller case. But the thing is, straightforward, science-based, you know, political parties in unison, uh, public health messaging would have taken care of most of that hesitancy. It's reasonable to think. Had the Trump administration and the GOP not chosen to politicise this issue and therefore compound those existing doubts, low information areas of the country, we would not have the problem that we now have. I completely agree. Okay, we'll get into the reasons for vaccine scepticism in some more detail in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, now is the time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. 
This week's issue investigates why poor and middle-income countries are losing the knack of catching up with rich ones. Our Wall Street correspondent participates in the Robin Hood IPO, and we report on the surprising popularity of Irish pubs with no beer. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode. Black Lamborghini roars through the southwestern desert at sundown. It lurches to a stop by the roadside in a haze of tyre smoke. A blonde woman in a figure-hugging red jumpsuit jumps out, clutching a can of spray paint. She strikes through the 55 on the speed limit sign and accelerates away. It's the opening sequence to the Burt Reynolds film Cannonball Run. Directed by his stuntman, Hal Needham, it was one of the biggest movies of 1981. And its stance on the trade-off between individual liberty and public health couldn't be clearer. It's a continuing conundrum. Is Americans' attachment to freedom killing them? The question first arose in the early 80s. Amid the optimism and prosperity of the Reagan years, the steady improvement in health outcomes in America began to plateau. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the Coke you get at McDonald's. The problem is the cup. It's too small. Obesity is the obvious culprit. 7-Eleven's Big Gulp gives you the freedom to enjoy a bigger Coke. It's at this time that America's waistlines started to expand along with the size of its cups of fizzy drink. Big Gulp gives you another kind of freedom. Freedom of choice. The first high-profile investigation of American nutrition by Senator George McGovern in 1977 had fingered fatty foods as the danger. The way was clear for convenience foods loaded with a tasty new invention, high-fructose corn syrup. Free plastic collector's cups featuring the stars of Burt Reynolds' new movie, The Cannonball Run. So if you want more for less, what you want is the big gulp. While it's tempting to blame obesity for America's failing health, the puzzle is more complicated. Last year, American life expectancy fell by more than a year to 77. It was the biggest drop since World War II. It's an anomaly attributable to COVID, but the longer-term trend is even more worrying. Advances in life expectancy in America have fallen short of peer countries since the 1980s and have remained stagnant for a decade. The causes appear myriad. Thanks to the likes of Burt Reynolds, America lags other rich countries in road safety. Gun deaths and opioid overdoses also make the US an outlier. Statistically, at least, Americans are freer to kill themselves than other nationalities are. But there's another key factor here. America is the only rich country without universal health care. The disparities in life expectancy within America are huge too. Infant mortality in the Mississippi Delta is on a par with Costa Rica, and double that in France. Claritin. It's time. It's time. Don't wait another minute for Direct-to-consumer drug advertising is another American exception. Mr. Wilkin, the doctor will see you now. At last. Begun by stealth in 1983, legalized in 1997, it's been shown to drive up the cost of healthcare. Call 1-800-CLARITIN. We are still in pursuit of the black Lamborghini. 
Vaccine hesitancy exposes deeply embedded attitudes to public health. Some expected the pandemic to put the brakes on America's risk-taking, tolerance of inequality and antipathy to public health restrictions. But statistically, as well as metaphorically, the average American prefers freedom at full throttle. Tamara, let's start with you. One of the points you make in the piece that you wrote from Little Rock is that the Delta variant now is spreading really fast among unvaccinated folks in parts of America where there are also other poor public health outcomes, high rates of obesity, heart disease, opioid overdoses and other things. So I guess that begs the question of whether COVID-19 is simply another manifestation of a familiar problem, which is that in pockets of America, public health messaging doesn't work, people behave in unhealthy ways that go on to do themselves great harm, or whether there's something really different going on here. Yeah, what I didn't expect to see or realize is that in many ways, this low vaccination problem is part of a larger issue with equity and access. So as you heard in the clip earlier, America has a big health problem. Just to throw a few more facts out there, two out of five American adults are obese, One in four young adults is too heavy to serve in the military. We're the fattest country in the OECD. Heart disease accounts for one out of four deaths. Almost half of adults have high blood pressure. 12% have high cholesterol. One in 10 has type 2 diabetes. And like you said, the states with the highest prevalence of these diseases tend to also have the lowest vaccination rates. And I think that you can always take an individual perspective on this and point fingers at people and say, well, you know, 23% of people don't get enough exercise and that's the problem, or only one in 10 eat enough fruits and vegetables. So, you know, shame on you, you should eat healthier. But when you step back and look at access issues, the CDC reported that more than 50% of Americans don't live within one mile of a park. 40% of all households do not live within a mile of healthy food shops. So this is a bit of an issue also with access. Um, and as of course, as we know, America also struggles with healthcare. About one in eight adults report not going to a doctor because of cost. So when you couple all the misinformation that is being spread by Republican leaders and pundits with this lack of access to healthcare and a general lack of understanding of science, you're bound to see what we see now, which is just a group of people really overwhelmed by misinformation. James, you wrote a really good and well-timed Lexington column recently about the politics of vaccine scepticism on the right. And in that column, you talked to Michelle Fiskus, a public health official in Tennessee who was fired for apparently doing her job. How do you sort out in your mind the causation here? To what extent is vaccine scepticism a sort of pre-existing condition in the way that Tamara describes? And to what extent is it a creation of, like so many other things, a creation of polarisation where Democrats have taken one side, the Republicans have taken the other? Um, How do you sort out the causation there? So we've already established that it's complicated, right? There's a few things feeding into this. um, And there are a few uh, pre-existing measurables like the infrequency of doctor visits in certain parts of the country, terrible health outcomes in those same parts of the country. And 
that has also correlated politically pre-COVID with high levels of mistrust of elite advice and a tendency to get information from the most irresponsible quarters of of the media and the internet. Um, so, so that's a pretty pernicious backdrop to start off with. But I think to sort of really clinch the causal effect of Republican misinformation, Trumpian misinformation, on top of all of those pre-existing conditions, so to speak, you can do a comparison with vaccine hesitancy amongst African-Americans, a broadly democratic voting group who had many of the same levels of, of high levels of, of mistrust, of elite advice, also generally poor health outcomes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as some of those uh, white working class, rural, exurban parts of the country, especially in the South, that we've mostly been talking about in Arkansas and elsewhere. And what we've seen is that African-Americans, who were a big story at the beginning of this process because they tend to be vaccine-hesitant, would they be turned around? Well, yes, they have been. They've listened to responsible public health messaging, including from their own, so to speak, politicians, democratic politicians, and they are getting vaccinated. Meanwhile, um, Republican voters with those same pre-existing poor health outcomes, you know, uh, lack of understanding of healthcare, um, high levels of mistrust, are not merely not being turned around by and large by public health advice, but have become more resistant to getting vaccinated as this process has unfolded. So, you know, broadly speaking, there's still in the kind of third of Americans who are unvaccinated, a decent chunk of people who are probably like the people that Tamara interviewed in Arkansas, you know, worried, concerned, uh, they've been subject to misinformation, um, their neighbours perhaps are telling them, don't get vaccinated, for God's sake, it'll kill you. Um, but they're persuadable. Okay, they're not lost. But there's a bigger cohort, which is overwhelmingly Republican, which is saying no, in no circumstance will we get vaccinated. And to be clear on the politics of this, it's not just the absence of responsible public health messaging from high profile Republicans, though, Again, we can't generalise entirely. You know, Mitch McConnell has done his bit to to get out a sensible message on on vaccines, but I think it's fair to say he's been drowned out by the Fox News Trump ecosystem. Even though the message there is now changing a bit to be more vaccine curious, let's say it's also as your Lexington column made clear that public health officials in states with um, Republican governors and Republican state legislatures, in some cases, have basically been prevented from doing their jobs or fired for, for doing their jobs, right? This is not just a question of messaging. No, for sure. It's also a, a question of, of actual legal constraint in some of those states. I mentioned previously that Mike DeWine, governor of Ohio, pretty sensible mainstream Republican, we might say, has followed all of the, the best science-based public health guidance through this pandemic. But he is forbidden by a law passed by his own legislator to uh, impose a mask mandate, for example. And not to say that he should, but he might want to do that. And um, similarly in Florida, where the sort of grandstanding of the Republican governor, this is a sort of inside-out story, where the sort of grandstanding of the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, earlier in the pandemic against mask mandates, well, it didn't stop local governments imposing their own mask mandates. And that really helped Florida. It, it meant that it was 
that the the sort of the politics was was greatly mitigated earlier in the pandemic. But more recently, Ron DeSantis has engineered a legal ban on mask mandates in Florida. So if uh, the Delta variant gets even more out of control, a mask mandate is not an option in Florida, either at the state or at the local level. So um, yeah, the, the the politics is fed into into policy, into regulation, which is constraining public health officials in the most unfortunate way. Tamara, earlier on, we heard from Jennifer Delahaye in Arkansas, who was saying that it's much more complicated than just politics. I mean, do you get the sense from talking to people like her and other public health folks in states run by Republicans that they're trying really hard to basically avoid the obvious conclusion here? It was clear that they did not want to blame politics, but you could also see that they were just exhausted. Um, If you Google Jennifer Dillahay, you'll see that she's being heckled for trying to spread accurate information about the vaccine. So I can only imagine how hard it is to keep trying to do your job not be political while also wanting to probably just strangle every single Republican politician who is spreading misinformation. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back to discuss what can be done to reach the vaccine holdouts in just a moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So what can be done to improve vaccine take-up? Some answers may lie in a new statistical model that throws light on vaccine hesitancy in America. It's been built by our data journalist, Elliot Morris. The Economist has been conducting weekly surveys with YouGov to assess vaccine hesitancy, the share of Americans who say they've gotten their vaccine, are planning to get it, are not sure or won't get it at all, every week for about the last four months. This allows us to run some statistical models to see which demographic, uh, geographic or political traits predict whether or not someone will get vaccinated. So when we run these models, we find, perhaps unsurprisingly, the biggest impacts uh, on hesitancy or willingness to get vaccinated are whether or not somebody voted for Donald Trump or Joe Biden in the 2020 election. Relative to the average American, a Trump voter is 13 percentage points less likely to get vaccinated or say they are going to get vaccinated in the near future. So if politics is so predictive of whether or not someone will get vaccinated, what can the government actually do? Well, since there are lots of demographic correlates besides political ones of whether or not someone chooses to get vaccinated, the government could use those as information in targeting their policy response. So for example, since we found education to be a large proxy for whether or not someone chooses to get vaccinated, 
lower education voters perhaps not believing in the efficacy of the vaccine as much as more educated postgraduate Americans. The government could focus on information dissemination to lower education workers. Similarly, we found that people who paid less attention to the news were less likely to get vaccinated. That also signals to us that there might be an information problem. There's also some areas of the country controlling for everything else, just less likely to get vaccinated. So if you live in a rural area, and perhaps this could be an access issue, you're less likely to get vaccinated than if you live in a city. And if you live in the American Southwest, particularly in Arizona, or if you live in Florida, you are very unlikely to get vaccinated relative to what we would have predicted for you based on all of your other factors. So while politics is important, there's lots the government could still do to combat the spread of the virus. James, one silver lining, I suppose, to the spread of the Delta variant in the US is that perhaps, as we heard from Tamara's reporting in Little Rock, perhaps some hitherto vaccine-hesitant people will get over their scepticism and their hesitancy and get vaccinated. But Joe Biden's hoping to give this whole effort a boost by encouraging states to provide $100 incentives for people to get their jabs. Do you think that's A, likely to happen, and B, if it did happen, likely to work? Well, I think we we know that of that cohort of you know, concerned, anxious, but not completely denialist vaccine-hesitant Americans. Um, we know that a portion of them would be susceptible to a, a Biden bung, so to speak. They they would be more willing to get vaccinated if they could get 50 or 100 bucks for the effort. Let's set aside the, the craziness of having to pay people to take a miracle drug. So in that sense, it would be worthwhile. And I think the willingness of state... Um, governments to to make that money available is a little bit of a moving target. I mean, we are seeing clearly a more vigorous effort to get people vaccinated in many of these Republican states. And if they feel that further inducement is a kind of alternative to coercion, which they're terrified of, coercion is a big word, but I just mean restricting the things that people can do if they're, if they're not vaccinated, then they might be tempted by this offer. And just to be clear, it's not the case the federal government has suddenly said, we've got this new lump of cash, which is available for states to offer people 100 bucks to get vaccinated. Joe Biden has said, listen, states have all this money under the Recovery Act. This would be a sensible way to use it, right? Sure, that's exactly right. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's advice from the president. Tamara, earlier in this pandemic, you wrote about African-American vaccine scepticism and correctly predicted that it would soften as more people, new people who got vaccinated and saw that it was safe. How optimistic are you feeling that that can be repeated with a different population, you know, specifically white, rural, ex-urban Americans who seem to be the most vaccine sceptical at, at the moment and are more likely to take their cues from high-profile Republican politicians? I'm very hopeful. Peer pressure is powerful. It's not just an African-American phenomenon that seeing others getting vaccinated would make you more likely to get vaccinated. I think that is a human phenomenon that if you see others doing something, you're more likely to do it yourself. It's a bit of a positive peer pressure. So I do think that as more people get vaccinated, we will see others. The couple that I interviewed that we heard earlier actually mentioned that they are starting to get social pressure as well from their families to get vaccinated. So I do think that peer pressure plays a 
plays a role. And James, in addition to some peer pressure and possibly some inducements to get vaccinated, we are seeing some employers, at least, saying that in order for people to return to workplaces, they will have to be vaccinated. We are, and I wish we'd see a lot more. I mean, I guess the the kind of exemplum here is France, where you had lots of sort of Gallic shrugging and indifference and scepticism of, of government at the beginning of uh, the vaccination season. And Macron just, you know, just said, um, you know, enough of this nonsense. Um, if you want to uh, live a normal life in France, if you want to be able to go to to museums, if you want to to go to concerts, um, theatres, you've got to be vaccinated. And that would be only consistent with all kinds of comparable issues in America. You have to wear a seatbelt, not only to save your own life if you have an accident, to try, but to try to convince you to drive carefully and within the speed limit so you don't kill anybody else. And that, of course, is is at the, the heart of this public health advice. Even if the, the virus can spread um, in a vaccinated population, we will not get the same um, severity of illness overloading the healthcare system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it, it would not be un-American to restrict the things that people can do if they're not vaccinated. And that is not the same thing, of course, as finger pointing and blaming people, which is what the rabble rousers on the right would like to suggest. They would like to suggest that any kind of restriction is a blame game. It's not a blame game. It's just saying that for the good of society, you have to be vaccinated to do certain things just kind of instinctively. So this is not empirical. I I do think it's reasonable to think that lots of those highly politicized, misinformed vaccine denialists would be relieved if the issue is effectively taken out of their hands in that way. They can carry on chuntering and blaming the government. It's just that they've got to get vaccinated if they want a job. Well, let's hope America can get this Delta variant under control, get the vaccination rate up by the fall so that schools can reopen safely and life can get back to something like normal. Thank you both. Before I let you go, however, I have a quiz for you. There's no Phasman this week, so the crown is up for grabs. Phasman's in Maine. There's something about summer, uh, an economist journalist in Maine that just seems to go together. So here is my quiz question. Little Rock is mentioned for the first time in The Economist in May 1872 as the end point of a planned new railway. The paper advertised bonds in the Arkansas Central Railway Company. The startup promised to connect the state capital with Helena, Arkansas, on the banks of the Mississippi, 100 miles to the east. It would cut a journey of eight days by steamer to just six hours. What was to be its principal cargo? Pigs. (laughs) I was going to say people, but now that feels awkward after he said pigs. (laughs) Corn. I'm afraid neither of you are correct. It was coal, in fact. Ah. True to the speculative mood of the times, the line was in fact never built. Memphis remained the main entrepot to the Mississippi. Which northeastern city was the start point for the first common carrier or passenger service in the US? My hint is it's a city not very far away from where you two are both sitting. I was going to say New York, but now I'm like, DC? (laughs) Philadelphia. It was Baltimore. I'm afraid no no point so far. But however, there's a bonus point, potentially. Can you name America's busiest train station? I feel like it has to be New York Penn or Grand Central. Yeah, it's got to be Grand Central. 
It's New York's Penn Station, so I think oh, Tamara God. gets half a point for that. Yes. So Why? Tamara wins the quiz by half a point to zero. What, what I would um, really like to know, John, is whether pigs featured in the top 30 biggest cargo <laughs> plan for that new railway line. <laughs> I'm pretty confident that both pigs and corn would have made the top 30, so you don't go off on your vacation in total disgrace. Brilliant. James, uh, thank you very much. Tamara, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, Tamara. Thanks also to Nico Rofast and to John Shields for producing. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.